Good morning. I don't know if y'all play any of those word games uh, where you or even learn a new word of the day. Uh, I think our word for the day today is discombobulated. Um, that means turned upside down, and that describes our adult Bible classes on Sunday morning in this quarter. It's a we're in the middle of kind of an unusual little stretch. We started the quarter the first week of September, uh, and then we met like normal, and then we had David Sproul here uh, for a combined Bible class, and then uh, Hiram and I are doing this little trade-off thing here for the next few weeks. Um, So um, you had to shift out of Revelation brain and into Psalms brain, um, and you'll have to do it again next week because uh, Roger and I are going to be uh, out of town, and uh, Hiram's going to be teaching a combined Revelation class here, but everything should change. Oh no, we have the cruise coming up, so um, it's the Bible. So you just come prepared to study the Bible, read all of Psalms, read all of Revelation, and you should be good to go. Be back to normal, yes, yeah, sometime in 24. So we're looking forward to that. Um, in the Psalms class, uh, I did the math, and we're only meeting for 11 weeks, uh, so far as I can tell, and obviously. This is not the kind of class, it's kind of uh, like when Jim uh, and David taught the book of Genesis. Uh, If we were to try to cover every psalm uh, in 11 weeks, that's somewhere between 13 and 14 psalms. Uh, And uh, I can't teach to that speed and you can't listen to that speed, so we're going to be somewhat selective uh, in that. I wanted to do this, especially since I knew that I was going to have a combined class this morning. As we look at how... Uh, The diversity of the Psalms shakes out. Uh, The thing about the book of Psalms more than any book of the Bible, Old or New Testament, is that it's diverse in the type of chapters that make it up. So when you think about Psalms, it's a songbook. You'll notice that's the title of our study. Songbooks from uh, the hymnal of Israel. Uh, It was also sung by the early church. But there was a psalm for all kinds of different occasions. Uh, Eddie Clower, a professor at uh, Harding University, uh, one of my favorite preachers, has a breakdown of the various types of psalms that you'll find in the book of Psalms, and you'll see what he has there. A little bit of explanation about each of those. A hymn psalm, and there are several of these, is a call to worship. And so you would have these songs that were sung as a part of uh, Israel's Sabbath worship each week and during the special feast occasions where they were actually being called. You know, we have ways to do that. Um, We ring a bell, and that brings everybody in. Some congregations around here, I think Center was one, has an actual bell. Uh, Portland, where my brother-in-law preaches, and they call people in by that bell. And so if you can imagine the priests and the Levites calling them in, you had the hymn psalms. Lament psalms, what would you think that those were? Expressing sadness or sorrow. All right, so you'll find a great many of them. Depending on your Bible, if you have a good study Bible, it may even categorize these. And so we're going to look at some specialized psalms uh, um, in just a few moments. Thanksgiving psalms, pretty self-explanatory. He would add to that its gratitude especially for salvation above all other things. The remembrance psalms is... You'll find in book three especially, there's a lot of historical psalms. You ever walk through the book of Psalms and it seems like that the writer, typically Asaph, is is reviewing Israelite history, going back especially to the Exodus and to the wilderness wanderings, the parting of the Red Seas. And 
you know, if you're, if you're following me uh, in the Lehman Learner right now, First and Second Chronicles is like Psalm, this part of Psalms in that way. Why, why did they need to remember? Why did the, the recipients of the Psalms throughout the centuries, why did the, the recipients of First and Second Chronicles, which would have been the southern kingdom, why did they need repeated reminders of the past? And what was the result of the forgetting? Uh, mistakes? Oh, absolutely. So you think about, so they'd be reminded of the sins they had committed. You think about why would you appeal to the wilderness wanderings? Because God slew all of the Israelites over the age of 20 uh, for one reason or another because of their faithlessness. So you need these reminders. That some of these Psalms are going to be written after the northern kingdom has been taken off into captivity and destroyed. And it serves the same purpose for us. You know, you think about the Lord's Supper. Why is it that the Lord has prescribed for us, Acts 20 and verse 7, to partake of the Lord's Supper every week? All right, and, and, the, and the appeal that that has, the importance that has for us in remembering, is it's to keep us bonded to him and to one another until he comes. All right, so it's a major type of psalm. There's confidence psalms, which are expressions of trust and faith in God. There are wisdom psalms, which are your teaching psalms. Sometimes they're called didactic. All that means is a system of teaching. Um, we're going to look at a psalm that has that aspect about it here in just a few moments. And then the royal psalms, or psalms about earthly and heavenly kings. What I find interesting is, is that different people break these psalms down in different ways. Dennis Bratcher, who has written a, a very good commentary on the book of Psalms, he talks about the different types of psalms, and within each of these... There are subcategories, and I won't take a lot of time with them except to say that the lament psalms break down into community where the whole nation or a group of people are crying out to God, and individual psalms. And you would think mostly about David in his sorrow, in his oppression. He's running from an enemy and cries out to God from the depths of his soul. And then you have uh, the lament, the, uh, I'm sorry, the specialized lament psalms, which fall into two different categories. The one that's most uh, famous in what was called the penitential, that is repentance psalm. If you think of that, the repentance psalms, what do you think of? You may not remember the number, but you know what I'm talking about, don't you? <laughs> psalm 51. David, in the wake of his repentance after Nathan the prophet comes to him, it's a penitential psalm. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, and he goes on. Uh, but also in that subcategory, you'll have imprecatory psalms. We haven't dealt with this, and it won't be one of the major things we deal with. It's when the writer calls on curses, calls on God to curse people because of their iniquity. All right, and then there are Thanksgiving psalms that break down into community and individual. There are specialized Thanksgiving psalms that are salvation history, what we've already talked about, songs of trust because God has been with them. Hymnic, those that were particularly uh, uh, lended themselves to be sung by the Israelites. They were liturgical. I mention that because our first psalm we're going to look at this morning is going to be liturgical. That just means a form or a pattern for how worship is to be conducted. And Bratcher says there's four types. There's covenant uh, liturgies where you uh, talk about... Um, the, the agreement that they had with God and the responsibility they had to God and that God had to them. There were royal uh, liturgical psalms, which speaks of the king, either in heaven or on earth. National and temple. 
which is what our Psalm 15 is going to be, and then community, which are the wisdom psalms. All right, I don't have time to go through all of these. I have... Uh, I did want to just mention, I won't explain these. Messianic seems to speak for itself. There's a whole category of psalms. Our second psalm we're going to look at this morning is going to be what we refer to as a messianic psalm. And what I want you to see is that just because a psalm refers to the Messiah, that doesn't mean that that's what the entire thing is about. Or that's the only thing that the writer is trying to accomplish. Now, Psalm 22 comes closer to being from the beginning to the end, a psalm that looks past David's life into the life of Christ. But the psalm we're going to look at, Psalm 16, is is a very important passage in prophecies about Christ, but there's so much more to be found there. The laments, we've already talked about, thanksgiving, the songs of ascent. You'll hear that referred to, in fact, from 120 to 134, you have these songs of ascent, and... Um, some of us are about to go to Israel in a few weeks, and some of you have been there before. Um, and you'll read in your Bible where it says that they were going up to Jerusalem. I don't care if you're coming from the north, south, east, or west. To get up on Mount Zion, you've got to walk up. It's a pretty steep climb. And so as the pilgrims were going to Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Weeks and Tabernacles, as they were making their way to the temple, they were going up. But spiritually, they, as they were going to worship, they were trying to go up. And so you have these songs of ascent. And then you have the royal psalms. And the acrostic psalms uh, speaks to the fact that when we talk about the book of Psalms, what kind of literature is it? Poetry. poetry. Not the rhyming kind of poetry like we have in English. Uh, it doesn't even rhyme in Hebrew. It has features that kind of sets it out as poetic in its nature and so you have what they call parallelism saying the same thing two different ways or you have what's called chiasms we talked about that I think the last time we taught that the first and the last element are similar the second and the next to last are similar and you work your way all the way to the middle of that psalm which is what the heart of the psalm is about but acrostic is another feature of a lot of psalms and even literature outside of the book of psalms which is basically going from A to Z, or some kind of combination of that, where if you find a psalm that has 22 verses in it, or some multiple of 22, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and the writer, by inspiration, is intentionally saying, thorough, exhaustive, comprehensive, here's what this psalm is about. All right, so you can kind of see some of those as we go through. Psalm 119, which is about the Word of God. Only a few verses don't mention some name for the Word of God. It's an acrostic times eight. And so it's really um, trying to do this particular feature. All right, I don't have time to talk about these. I just wanted to bring it up. Do you see, even with what I've said, the book of Psalms is diverse. And the reason why we wanted to spend a quarter in talking about this and probably need to come back to it later is because no matter what you're dealing with in life, this this book has something for you, whatever your mood, whatever your struggle. Um, The way I had put it was the writer may worship, he may wonder, he may wail, or he may share wisdom depending on the psalm. And so in that diversity, we're going to go to some of the earlier psalms. What we've covered if I've done my math right, um, is Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 13, and Psalm 14. It may look like we're going through because our first two are going to be 15 and 16. And if we have time, we'll look at Psalm chapter 19. With Psalm chapter 15, I want us to do, first of all, uh, 
a look at how these psalms are composed. They're, the background of those to see what um, the psalm writer was, was doing, and then we'll look at how we can uh, benefit from that psalm. All right, I mentioned a moment ago that it was a liturgical psalm. Anybody remember what I said liturgy is? You're saying, Neil, you've been shooting like a, a machine gun. I don't know that I can remember a lot of it. What's a liturgy? It's a form or pattern for how worship is to be conducted. So Psalm 15 is five verses in which it's being composed for the people who are coming into the presence of God to know something about the value, the importance, or the responsibility that they have in coming to worship God. It's a, a, a hymn written in public worship, a liturgical psalm, a temple liturgy. that has to do with uh, calling people to worship God the way he wants to be worshipped as they go into the temple. How many of you have written over your psalm, who's the writer? David. All right, so we talked about this in week one. David wrote 75 psalms. I think it's pretty interesting. He's not the only psalm writer. I think we identified seven or eight different individuals that wrote the psalms. David wrote the most. And so often when referring to the book of psalms, it would be the psalms of David. Uh, fully half, 150 psalms make up the book of psalms, 75 are attributed to David. You might want to make this note. There are at least, in every Bible I've ever looked at, only 73 are attributed to David in the book of psalms. So why do we say 75? That's an interesting thing about the Bible. There are so many different ways to approach our study of the Bible. But one of the things that we can glean from this is how other Bible writers will reflect back on a book of study that we're in. There are two New Testament-inspired writers that tell us something the book of Psalms doesn't tell us. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 25, the inspired Luke shares the words of Peter and John who say that David wrote Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 did not in the Hebrew Bible say a Psalm of David. But the Holy Spirit through Luke says it was David. And, and the exact same thing happens in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 7 where the Hebrews writer is, he's not even trying to tell us about authorship. He's making an argument that Jesus is better. But he tells us that Psalm 95 is written by David. The Hebrew Bible doesn't include that over it. But the Holy Spirit through the Hebrews writer does. So that's why we say David wrote 75. And most believe that this was a psalm like the Songs of Ascent. It's uh, separated from the others in the songbook of Israel in that um, you had a really good songbook going. If you're making the long journey from a long way off to go to the temple, you know, you're going to have to pass the time. I don't know what y'all did when I was a kid. kind of made me a geography nerd. Uh, we, we played the tag game. Any y'all ever played the tag game? All right, so my, I know it's because... I had a brother and a sister, and we were prone to want to fight with each other. And so she said, hey, as we go down the interstate, see if you can find uh, as many different tags as possible. And, you know, and I just took that seriously. I was, you know, I, it was like a mission. And every, every different state tag that came along, I would, I would write that down. So if you can imagine, entire families, uh, clans are going from Ephraim or going from Manasseh or Dan, um, and they're making their way to the temple. And so in that caravan, you might think about Luke chapter 2 when Jesus got lost and separated. You've got this big group of people and they're on their way. And so as they're going, 
one of the things, very wise things they did was to get the, the folks in the group to sing about God's greatness, his goodness, his blessings, um, why they needed to be faithful and loyal to him. And so Psalm 120 through 134 was this long group um, of songs. And maybe the rehearsing of that made it easier for it to stick in their minds. I know more than once I've told you that um, on the way to church we sing songs and we sing songs that are related to um, worship, but I, I inherited a disease from my dad. My dad has the half the lyrics disease. You all ever had that? We don't have a songbook, and Kathy smiles because I did that today on two or three of them. I think I know that song when I get started. I'm about five words in, and then it's watermelon, watermelon, because I can't think of what it actually it says. So as they rehearse these psalms over and over again, year after year, they're putting the Word of God into their heart. Psalm 15, though it's not in the Songs of Ascent, is one of those psalms, and we'll see in just a moment, how it fits into this category of a pilgrim ascent song. Let somebody, if you would, please read Psalm 15. There's only five verses. Read it nice and loud. Okay, so in the impression that you have in listening through that and in any previous readings, um, how does that psalm strike you? How would you describe that psalm? Okay, it would speak to moral qualities that need to exist. Um, it, it's challenging, wouldn't you say? You'll notice that we have the way this psalm would break down. And remember, this is a, a temple liturgy. This is one that's designed for worship together. And it would be um, an instruction or an encouragement on how to do it right. Okay, So God was concerned about worshiping in spirit and truth, even though it was different under the Old Covenant. And so the question, who's asking the question? Lord, who may abide in your uh, holy hill? Who may dwell in your, in your presence? Uh, certainly it's the psalmist, but is the psalmist speaking on behalf of just himself? So I want you to think in terms of all the people, all right, as they're thinking about contemplating, getting ready, getting started to go into worship. Uh, now we think in New Testament terms, we think about going into worship, but go ahead and do that. Think, maybe it's that five minutes, it's before Wayne or, or Dale cut off the lights. And just by way of review, if you think, wow, that's a very strange thing, I think it's meant to kind of get us mentally geared uh, up for the worship that's about to happen, to, to realize it's about to start, and so let's, let's uh, kind of collect our thoughts. So this is what that is. They're coming in and they're saying, who can come in? All right. And so the answer that's given is given presumably by the Levites or the priests. And they lay out these ten characteristics um, and at the end of that, there's a promise. If, if you're worthy, and I don't mean of your own goodness, but if you strive to do what the psalmist is saying, then you have the promise, the blessing that's expressed at the end of this psalm. Something else that's very interesting about this is that do you notice that there's a balance between the positive and the negative? Maybe you didn't catch this as you read it the first time, but notice it with me as we read it again. He says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Here's the answer. He who walks with integrity, who works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Positive or negative? All right, this is what you need to be. All right, next verse. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Positive or negative? Negative. 
Verse 4, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Positive or negative? Positive. Um, he does not put out his money to, uh, with interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. You go back, uh, by the way, into the first part of uh, the end of verse 4. Um, he does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Positive or negative? Negative. All right. He who does these things, positive or negative, will never be shaken. I don't mean that it's like a do not, but what is it? Never be shaken. Is that a positive or a negative statement? It's negative. All right. That doesn't mean it's bad for you. It means it's in the negative sense. So this is just a big, huge coincidence, isn't it? Three positives, three negatives. Three positives, three negatives, a positive and a negative. How many positives? Math people? <laughs> Math people on Sunday morning? Uh, that's close. You're in the right ballpark. It's not. It's, it's uh, you know what? Y'all are the math people. I'm not. So I'm a preacher. I are a preacher. I are not a mathematician. Eight positive. How many negatives? Eight. Same number. Sorry. You know what I counted? And I counted. I got five of each. <laughs> uh, that's why I won't be teaching algebra or anything like that. All right. Eight of each. Eight positive, eight negative. The same number. So what he is saying in this is, is that there are things that God wants you to do in a positive sense, to strive for, to incorporate into your life, to make a part of you, if you want to be among those who dwell on God's holy hill. And there are things that you have got to excise, to remove, to make sure is not there. Or that you're characterized in a way that is not particular to these things, including the last one, is not shaken. It may not mean as much to us as English speakers, but to the Hebrew mind that sees that, they're seeing that in addition to the words that are being said, even in the way that it's said, it's sending a message. And I point that out to you so that you can see that. All right, so when we get to looking at how the psalm itself breaks down, I'm going to give you a couple of outlines, a couple of ways to look at this psalm. And the first one we can call the, the trait of the righteous, the traits of the righteous. And you'll see this when it breaks down in this psalm. Number one, they are intimate with God. At least that's what they're striving for. They are the ones who are interested. They come up to the temple and they say, who can be in your presence? Who can dwell in your hill?" You don't ask that question unless you're trying to make your relationship with God closer. All right. And so as I find my pursuit of righteousness, I want to be intimate. I want to be close to God. You also see that there is an inescapably an integrity that has got to describe your life if you're going to be right with God. So look at verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 5. How is that integrity demonstrated or talked about in those verses? What does a person with integrity look like? Okay. Mm -hmm. But I thought that the Old Testament was in, interested with the external part of us. Making sure that we're doing the right things on the outside. I mean, the, the book of Psalms corrects that mis, mistaken concept. Um, you know, David in that penitential psalm, he says, You desire truth where everybody else can see it. No, in my innermost being, at the very core in the heart of me, 
If I'm going to be a person of integrity, it has got to involve my heart. It's got to be an inside-out righteousness. You know, when Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not um, just interested in reforming the old law. But what he is trying to do is to get the scribes, the Pharisees, to go back and to say, here's what God intended in the first place. You've corrupted the righteousness of God with your own righteousness, and here's what God wanted in the first place. Don't just uh, uh, commit murder. Don't be angry in a sinful way with your brother. Don't just commit a, not, don't just refrain from adultery. Don't lust in your heart. Is that bound up in the old law as well as the as Jesus's? Yes, absolutely. That's what Jesus is trying to say. Go back to what God originally wanted. Think, for example, for a moment about marriage. God created marriage in the way that he wanted it. Moses, because of the hardness of their heart, corrupted that and created a different system that God permitted because of the hardness of their heart. Now along comes Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He says, let's go all the way back to the beginning, and let's do it the way God intended it from the very start. And so when the integrity of the righteous is being discussed here, great point, it starts in the heart. How else is integrity uh, demonstrated in verse 2, 3, and 5. All right. So our speech, our conduct. Okay, anything else? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah, so you'll see that kind of woven across, and that is integrity. Integrity is sacrificing how I feel and what I want for the good of others. All right. So a lot of the principles that are bound in the New Covenant have their roots, their seeds right here. You see, God hasn't changed Hebrews 13 and verse 8, and so he wants the same thing for us, but what he's done, he's perfected that with the example of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ and the covenant of Christ. But it's right here. That's the point. So if I want to know how to be a better New Testament Christian today, can I benefit from going to Psalm chapter 15? Absolutely. The way I have it here is it's an integrity of walk. That's conduct, verse 2. Um... Or of example, maybe, is better. Of works, verse 2. Of words, verse 3. And even how I handle my wealth in verse 5. Got a little crazy with the alliteration. Sorry about that. Uh, Number 3. They are insightful. Toward the unrighteous. Toward the righteous. And they have a clear view also of themselves. And I, I love the way the psalm ends. He will never be shaken. The trait of the righteous. And this goes all the way back to the first psalm. Do you remember uh, how the, the blessed man is described in Psalm 1 and verse 3? You know, it talks about how, what he doesn't do. Um, his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law. He meditates day and night. He shall be like a, a what? Anybody remember? A tree planted by the rivers of water. That does what? Brings its fruit forth in its season. And whatever he does will prosper. So you you have this picture. Remember we said when we looked at Psalm 1 that this was kind of a blueprint for the rest of the Psalms. It kind of is the perfect introduction to the other 149. And so here we are coming back to it in Psalm 15. That if you are a righteous person, you're never going to be shaken. You can have confidence. You can have blessed assurance. It's what God wants for you in the first place. All right, let me just give you another outline of Psalm chapter 15. Call this Holy Hill Dwellers. And... And as I approach this, uh, the psalm in this way, if you'll consider um, a spiritual fitness test. All right, so uh, how many of you have ever had a stress test before? Okay, y'all help me out. So what happens in a stress test? They 
Okay. okay, so they get you on a treadmill. I've always wondered about that. Do they ask what your fitness level is, and if you can run eight miles an hour, they do that, or is it usually a bit more pedestrian than that? Do they put an incline on it? Okay, what's the purpose of that? What are they doing at the same time? Endurance, the strength of your heart, the health of your heart. I, I'm really, I, I, I guess I should have looked this up online. You can look up everything online. What else happens as a result of that? Ah. Okay, so there's a comparison made, all right, of, of before the stress begins, after the stress has occurred. Andrew? Okay, so all right, just one more question. How, how do they know? How can they tell how things are? Okay, they got a machine. They have some external source that's able to look at that. So I feel pretty good about my analogy here. And I, did, and I, I knew kind of what a, a stress, and I probably ultimately will have one of those at some point, I'm sure. But there, this is a, a divine stress test um, to, to, to measure our spiritual health. All right, and, and so to that end, here's kind of how I break that down. God wants to make sure that we have proper working arms and legs. And so he talks about two things. He talks about our walk. And he talks about our work. When he talks about our walk, what he's talking about is our character. And again, this is how the entire book begins. Live so that we can live with ourselves. That involves being honest, being honorable, being wholesome in who we are. And then our work refers to our conduct. It's how we treat others and how we deal with others. So here's a good question to ask in this part of the fitness test. Are we somebody that people love to see coming or dread to see coming? To keep with our anatomical kind of comparisons, are we seen as cutthroats? Are we seen as backstabbers? Are we seen as ankle biters? Or are we seen as one who lives such a godly life as Jesus calls for in Matthew 5.16? He says, let your light so shine before men that they may do what? See your good works, not to kind of say, hey, look how good I am, but what's the result of their seeing your good works? And glorify your Father who is in heaven. All right, so here I am on that spiritual, and I speak reverently, that spiritual treadmill. All right, and God is measuring my spiritual fitness, and he's going to look at my, my arms and my legs. Am I working and walking in the way that I need to? And then, as Chuck said a moment ago, he is going to test the strength of my heart, verse 2. As we mentioned a moment ago, just write down Psalm 51 and verse 6. God desires truth right there. A strong heart, if you were to describe it with other words, what is a strong heart spiritually? What does it take to have a strong heart? Our desire, faith. Okay, so there's objective ways, right? There's ways that I'm working on my character and there's ways outside of me. And the most important one is to put more of God's word inside of me. Good. And, and that's perhaps the perfect measurement of the heart. Does it reflect the heart of God and how he looks at life, how he sees things? Very good. All right. Um, now, you don't get this on your normal stress test, so it's almost like having a, a specialist. The dentist comes in uh, for just a moment, and he looks at your mouth. And I find it interesting. He spends a lot of time looking at our mouth. Now, I, I agree that with the statement that it all starts in the heart. But it's incredible to see how much God is focused on the health of our mouth. And we can, and we'll talk about this sometime today. I'm trying to remember where it is. Um, but um, when you, you think about how the, that James says with the same mouth that you hear singing, 
you know, to the very best of our ability, the top of our lungs, praying the most, a Pharisee-like prayer in Luke 18, you know, uh, in the sense that, you know, Jesus says in Matthew 6, they pray these long prayers. Matthew chapter 23. But, man, people say, wow, what an eloquent. Wow, that's a spiritual prayer. Or teaches a Bible class, and people go, wow, man, I wish I could study the Bible. Like, boy, how he exposed the truth, or the preaching, or anything else. And then, they see or hear that evidence of that mouth somewhere else, doing something else. It's a challenge. Anybody want to raise their hand and say they've never been guilty of having an unhealthy mouth? You see why God wants us to be focused on that. Because it's very easy for us to go astray of what a righteous life looks like, that life of integrity. And so he deals with that in verse 3 and 4. By the way, do you notice something that he specifically mentions as a unhealthy mouth? Does he, does he target anything in verse 3 or 4? Our backbiting, your version may say slander. Backbiting is perhaps a little bit more graphic in, in helping to define the term. Uh, what does is, what is backbiting and slander look like? What you ha- Malicious toward others, if you preface it with bless their heart, it's okay, right? Oh, maybe not. Okay. Um, and it's often, because of the backbiting, the slander, the malicious... It's not near as effective if the victim is right there next to you, is it? In fact, the tone may change. You ever been in a situation where, I've got to tell you about, you know, and all of a sudden they come around the corner. And it's like, you know, you know we're to change the subject, you're doing something else. How does that relate to Psalm 15? Lord, who can abide in your holy hill? Who can come into your presence? Not the one who is characterized by slander. And backbiting. That's convicting. And at least it is to me. I, I've, I've been guilty of that. You know, may I say I've been guilty of that since I've been here. And, you know, I've tried to take care of that. Uh, and it, to the best of my ability. But, you know, sometimes I can be blind to it. You ever do it and not know it? And, some, you know, in trying to figure out the rules of the road on that, I think it goes back to what, what Chuck was saying. Am I striving to love what he loves and hate what he hates? I'm still going to stumble and fall, but it better not be characteristic of me. Because there is a person who backbites and there is the backbiter. There is somebody who has been guilty of slander and the slanderer. And I know I'm going to inevitably fall short, but I want to be in the first category, not the second category. All right? One other part of the, the stress test. Again, we've got a, another specialist coming in. The heart doctor's going out of the room. And we have the, the eye doctor comes in and checks our eyesight. In Psalm 15, because we want to see the, the wayward like God does. Um, we don't want to excuse or defend willful sin. Uh, we want to see as God sees. All right, so what the psalmist is calling for, if we can stay with this analogy, is he wants us to have an overall clean bill of health. And so, by summary, the spiritually healthy keeps his word. He doesn't take advantage of the needy. And he does not betray the innocent. All right? Any thoughts or questions about Psalm 15? Oh, just as a PS, we must pass the exam. Uh, We're not going to make a perfect score. But we need to be in the category of the righteous and not the wicked there. All right. Psalm 16. Let's turn. It should be right there in your Bibles, right next door. Um, Psalm chapter 16. This is 
uh, you have your little, by the way, I gave you, we had another sheet. Did uh, everybody get, I know you have your worksheet. Did everybody get one of these? I, I would attribute who the source is, but uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's just on my computer um, as a PDF file that um, doesn't have the author. But you see there under common words, uh, do you notice that over Psalm 16 you may have miktam? It's a musical term, so you'll, you'll see these four musical terms. And a miktam is concise and clever. That's what the idea is conveyed in Psalm chapter 16 with this miktam. And you may even have that. Um, uh, another explanation is it could be uh, an uh, epigram or an atonement psalm. All right, so that's kind of just to understand the terminology as you come to it in the Psalms. All right, here's what David says. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names on my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. Anything in that psalm stand out? Okay, why verse 8? Okay. All right. You are correct. What else? Okay. Verse 8. All right. So, typically, I don't know what your lexicon in your mind of things from Psalms that comes to your mind. Psalm 51, David's repentance psalm. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Maybe Psalm 22, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, Psalm 119, in honor of the word of God. If anybody has a fact in their head about Psalm 16, it is that it is the strongest prophetic passage on the resurrection in the entire Old Testament. And it is significant. I don't know if this is significant, but just a little fun fact for you. that it, Yes, Peter quotes it, and so does Paul. Peter quotes it in his first recorded gospel sermon. In fact, the first recorded gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2. Um, in verse 27, specifically is where he quotes verse 10. But he is quoting Psalm 16, verse 8 through 10. Paul quotes it in his first gospel sermon that's recorded for us at Antioch of Pisidia in Acts chapter 13 and verse 35. It is cited as proof of Jesus' resurrection uh, that was seen by prophecy. I thought this class went to like... 30 after or something. I'm sorry. Okay. So let me do this for you. Um, there's so much more to this psalm. And see, this is the frustration in not just glossing over these psalms, but spending a little bit of time and looking at the meat and the content that's in there. I've got 11 points from this psalm, and you've got 11 blanks. So let me give them to you. But it, it's all talking about our all-sufficient God, what God has done for us to demonstrate that he is the good and gracious God that he is. The resurrection is huge. Christianity doesn't exist. We're not here right now without the resurrection. But there's all this and more with our God. 
And so let's walk through that very quickly. David says, my preservation. Now preservation takes in with it um, providence. And I believe that there's providence that's also mentioned. But you think about David. Was David preserved? Did God protect him? Did God deliver him at any time? Interesting, isn't it? When did that start? According to David. When he was young. And how did God preserve him? Save his life. From what? The lion and the bear. But he says that because he says, I know God's going to do what? He's going to protect me from who? Goliath. From the hand of this Philistine. He says, I've looked in the past in times... I don't know about you guys. Um, I, I came across... Uh, one of my, my boys get fascinated by these kind of outdoor uh, things. And uh, there was the guy... And I even mentioned, I think, in a sermon not long ago about the guy who wanted everybody to love the grizzlies. Anybody ever go and listen to the video, presumably the that guy's... Please don't. It'll, it'll, it'll ruin your day. Uh, there's actually an audio recording of how he and his girlfriend met their end. Um, you don't fool around with bears if you have any good sense. But what David was doing is he's a shepherd, and it's because of his reliance upon God and protecting what was entrusted to him that he was preserved. How does that go into his adult life after Goliath? Saul. I mean, constantly. You've got David on the run. How about after David's sin and his restoration? Is he preserved by God? How about Absalom? How about Sheba? How about Goliath's brothers and cousins in 2 Samuel 21? And there's an important... David is saying, I have been preserved by my God from my younger years and by the time he gets to the Philistine giants, it's his elderly years. And from beginning to end, God will protect me. He'll preserve me. Uh, more to say about that. But Proverbs 2 and verse 8, he preserves the way of his godly ones. Number two, God provides purity. He says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. you. You compare God to us. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above, James 1.17. But we have no goodness apart from him. There's none good, Romans 3 and verse 12. David proclaims in Psalm 34 and verse 8, and this is a point I wanted to make. Look in your Psalm 16 and see how many other Psalms you can cross-reference to this Psalm. How the writers are pulling from other parts of the Psalm book. Um, David proclaims, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This Psalm is going to repeat it. The Psalms are going to repeatedly say the Lord is good. The Lord is good. And so... There's purity from God. And then there's the people of God. Verse 3 and 4. How often do you look at God's people and see that as an indication of God's goodness and His righteousness? If you do, and you should, shouldn't that temper and alter the way that we speak about one another? Um, And when we speak negatively and critically of other members of the body, do you see faithful New Testament Christians in the New Testament who behave that way? That's what convicted me. I, I, you know, Paul withstood Peter to the face. Paul did not pull Barnabas or Titus or Timothy aside and say, do you see what Peter's doing? What a hypocrite. He goes to him. And so this integrity motif comes back around to us again there. Um, and so that's a provision from God. It's a blessing that God has given us each other. We need to nurture that blessing. Number four. Uh, He blesses us with a portion in pleasant places, as how he says it in verse uh, 5 and 6. Yep. Absolutely. 
And so that's part of the provision itself, the blessing that God has given to us. All right, I knew that you note takers wanted to have the last of that. Um, I had a bonus. Oh, there it is, one more. Pleasures. All right. Next week, Revelation. Two weeks, we'll pick up probably with Psalm chapter 19. So if you want to read Psalm 19, you'll be prepared for those of you in the Psalms class for two weeks from today. All right, thank you very much.